What's up, everyone? MTG Goldfish Podcast here. The crew is with you. Uh, there you go for one of our Twitter followers uh, that missed our little intro uh, phrase right there. The crew is with you. Richard, what's up? Hey, everyone. What's going on? Seth, you're ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it, guys. We took a little break, but we're back. Episode 46. We have a lot to talk about, so we took a little hiatus for one week. We come back. We have a ton of fish mail that we're going to get to. And uh, we have some things to talk about as well. So on the docket, we saw some Oath of the Gatewatch spoilers that we're going to talk about, or unconfirmed spoilers, I should say, that we're going to get out of the way. We'll, we'll talk about it. We're assuming they're real at this point, you know, maybe, whatever. Uh, we'll talk about briefly the TCG 50K, a Wizards announcement about uh, coverage. And we are going to be talking about the Stoneforge Mystic GP promo. Big announcement so we're, we're gonna get our uh thoughts on that about is it coming off the ban list is it not we'll all uh kind of chime in on that but first <laughs> as richard said off cast the motif of this uh uh podcast is i'm old i'm scared and i don't want change and ladies gentlemen you, you get whatever colors mana take it i don't care you can have it i don't want it so let's talk about it the the unconfirmed spoilers was an expedition mystic gate and uh, we'll talk about this first. So what did you guys think? What do you think of the diamond mana? Richard? Uh, what do I, I think we talked about what we thought about it. I thought it made no sense. Um, and we saw Mystic Gate, and it taps. So the original Mystic Gate taps to add a colorless mana. And now we see the Expedition Mystic Gate taps to add a diamond mana. Uh, so it seems to confirm the diamond mana works as we thought it would. Uh, you can... You can use it to add diamond mana. Diamond mana can use to pay for things that require uh, generic mana and colorless mana, I guess is what we're calling it now. Yeah. And the fact that I have to tell you that generic mana and colorless mana are not the same thing and I have to sit down and explain to people makes it totally confusing and uh, I don't like it. Uh, I don't know why we had to do it now. Uh, It's just confusing. Like playing Modern and Legacy, it's confusing enough when the cards don't uh, you know, when, when you play a card, the opponent reads it, and you tell them, wait, the oracle text is different. Uh, here's what it does. If you don't believe me, you can call a judge over, right? And now you're going to do that for basically, like, every single card, right? Like, anything that produced colorless mana in the past now produces this diamond thing, and people won't be able to play the game. It will be very difficult. So I think this is a big blow for new players, and I'm hoping this whole thing is, like, a big scam, all these like you know, <laughs> all of these leak spoilers was like someone playing a big joke on the internet and none of this actually happened. That 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 is my wish. So Richard is is definitely the same as me. You, you don't you don't want to see this. You're you're old and scared. Definitely too. not. I need okay. I need Sarkin to go back in time and save Ugin or something. Christmas <laughs> timeline. This, this this is just weird and yeah. As someone who's played since like. Mercat like uh like invasion and prophecy back when I was a little kid like this is <laughs> I don't want this I don't it, it looks weird I don't okay whatever you know what fine I don't care I'm not gonna argue about this over social media anymore take the diamond mana I don't care new players are definitely supposed to get this worry free no complications at all they're just gonna pick this right up. Well, I don't. I I get how it works. I just don't understand why they're doing it. Is all. So, Seth, go ahead. Oh my God. All right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I just don't understand the the logic behind this. I'm a little bit more willing to give this a chance than the two of you are. I think as far as having this be part of the game, but. Like we've mentioned before, you just have to question almost every choice about it. The the one thing that the Mystic Gate, assuming it's real, s- confirms to me at least, is that this isn't just a snowmana thing that's for Oath of the Gatewatch. Like, that was my initial impression. Like, oh, okay, right. this is some, like, wacky thing they're doing for one set. It's their gimmick. Fine. But if you're printing Expedition Mystic Gate, which isn't even legal and standard, so you can't even play it alongside uh, the new cards from Oath of the Gatewatch, this means that this is a change that they're apparently going to do going forward. I don't think there's any reason that that wouldn't just be a generic mana symbol if they weren't planning on making this part of the game. So it's kind of is looking like this is the sixth color of magic. And the idea is scary just because the change is so big. 
I'm willing to give it a shot as far as how it plays out. I just don't know why they would do this in the second set of a block in a small set. They didn't introduce it in Battle for Zendikar, which would have made sense. Uh, you mentioned, Chaz, they could have introduced it in Magic Origins. Would have made even more sense as Magic Origins was kind of this, like, reboot set to some extent. So I right. just I just don't know why they – if they were going to do this, I don't know why they did it the way they did. Like, that just completely befuddles me, and I cannot comprehend why they would do it the way they did it. Yeah. And I mean, of course, I'm going to have to give it a chance. I mean, I don't really have a choice, do I? So <laughs> if I want to keep playing Magic, I mean, obviously, we're going to have to deal with this colorless stuff. But yeah, you know what? What really gets me and listen for everyone listening, I, I get how it works. OK, I, I played the game a long time. I, I, it's not I'm not like an invalid. OK, I understand like, well, colorless mana is well, yeah. <laughs> uh, colorless mana is colorless. And basically what it is is Cards can't generate generic anymore. Cards, like, if you look at Mystic Gate, um, the, the things that we talked about last time, the things that we mentioned is Soul Ring now is basically going to be costing one generic, but taps to add two of these diamond mana. So generic is now basically uh, just a cost rather than something that could be generated. And, I mean, I don't know. You're right, Seth. Like, we talked about this a lot. I just don't understand, like, why would you do this in the second set of a two-set block just to, what, like, make the set seem more cool? Like, it's not. I just don't understand. So you're going to have Eldrazi that are generic, Eldrazi that are generic plus colorless, and then colored Eldrazi? Like, I'm just not getting the continuity here. They could have definitely done this in Origins, like you said. It, it was It's a core set. They could have introduced this as like a, a reboot set, a core set, introduced some of the colorless cards, and then continued on that going forward with Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch. I just don't understand like, why they decided to you know, do this at another basic land. I don't know. Well, you got to do it sometime, right? So if, if, you, I guess. if you're forward-thinking and you believe that Magic today is only like 5% of the size it will be in the future, right? Like if this is actually just the starting of Magic and down the line Magic will be the most played game ever, right? It makes sense to do it now. Like you, you basically need to do it as early as possible. Uh, ideally, they would have done it when they released the game back in Alpha, but they didn't <laughs> right. think about it. So like I guess like now they got to do it. Uh, and it, it kind of invalidates all the cards printed before today. Um, but yeah. if the majority of the magic lifespan and of the product is after today, then it's fine, right? Uh, so I understand why they do it. And I think the mechanic itself makes a lot of sense. What I don't like is the fact that it's not backwards compatible, right? Like all of your cards say different things now. And it's just very confusing for new players. So yeah. had they put this in on day one, it would be perfect. Um, but now I think it's a bit late to kind of jump ship when... You know, was it that bad to not have this mechanic? Like, was was that such a terrible world well, to move yeah. forward to what we have today? So, so I don't know that you know this this forcing over to this new templating basically uh, was necessary, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, I'm really concerned for new players. Magic is hard enough as is, and oh, now it's just yeah. another thing to have to explain to everyone. My goodness, is it hard to explain magic? And it's it's just really difficult when you sit at F and M playing standard. And cards that you just bought like, from two sets ago, like, don't actually do what they say. And, you know, like, yeah, it's like, just going to be the... difficult. And, but, you know, maybe once we're past this transition, you know, like a year from now, when all the new cards will be printed like this uh, and standard will just all, only have the symbol, like everything will be OK. Um, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, even the even the pain lands from uh, Magic Origins still have tap to add a generic. So, uh, again, it's just, you know, when you have something so... When you have something so recent that it doesn't even, it, there's just no continuity. And you're right, Seth, they could have just made this, like, waste mana, like, like the snow-covered mana just for this set. And I think it would have been a little bit, you know, it would have been a little weird, but it would have made a little more sense. The fact that it's on Mystic Gate now definitely means that it's not snow-covered land. It's definitely a, it's replacing generic mana as something that can be produced. On like on cards that can tap now to add generic mana, so I don't know. I, I mean, it's just like you said, Richard. It, it's a little jarring. Of course, people are going to get used to it, but it, it just the timing is mainly the biggest issue here, and the continuity of their design is the biggest issue here for me. Yeah, and I I think though, 
it is fairly intuitive. Like, it's weird, and it's going to be really weird, like Richard said, while we have this mismatch standard with some cards having generic, some lands like the Pain Lands, and some having this new colorless symbol. But I think, like, a year or two from now, once everything is like this, assuming that's what happened, it is just, like, another color. Like, and that's... I mean, Magic is a complicated game, but understanding that if something says has a red mana symbol on a land, it taps for one red mana is fairly intuitive. So I think that someone starting the game a year or two from now, when this change has been fully implemented, it's not going to be that big of a deal, really. It's just like having one more color to memorize. Right. Hey, maybe uh, maybe this is their first reaction to Hearthstone. (laughs) (laughs) Hearthstone's too simple let's make our game needlessly complex yeah (laughs) hey we can we can make the new more design space too in our game so screw you Hearthstone ironically this would be a very easy change to do in Hearthstone because it's a digital TCG you can just update all the cards (laughs) and like boom like no problem right well that then MTGO will be updated won't it yes MTGO yeah, they always put the new Oracle on the old cards. Yeah, so so there you go. I mean, so MTGO will at least be consistent. Paper, not as much, but I guess you're right, Richard. you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, and plus MTGO enforces the rules too, right? So you can't right. do stuff that makes no sense. <laughs> like with the, yeah. But if you're confused with the new... It, it'll tell you if you're messing up. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're sitting there live in a game and you don't know, like if you forget what diamond and generic is, you're screwed, but... On MTGO, you, you, it'll make sure they, they're, they're uh, telling you what you're doing wrong. Yeah, the one thing I hope is when they release the official article and they spoil it, they tell us on the internet, this is how you write the symbol. <laughs> this is how you pronounce the symbol. You know, this is how you say it. And it, don't leave it up like the, the Battle for Zendikar duels where you have like 20 people coming up with different names and, yeah, you know, we don't know what to call this thing on cast and things like that. I mean, people, yeah, people still don't know. I mean, it's, it's like nuts. Like, people refuse to call them battle lands. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Don't know. Uh, Are we done complaining yet? Just, is this the yeah. complaining portion of the podcast? <laughs> this is definitely the complaining portion of the podcast. But, but see, the thing is, when we complain, we offer up solutions. And the solution would have been to introduce it into Magic Origins, and it would have made a little bit of an easier transition going into Battle for Zendikar. See? There you go. No, we don't, we don't just complain around here. But I mean, I, I'm just old, and I don't, I don't like things changing around me. That's it. Let's talk about the actual spoilers. Uh, so the first up is Ayali, Eternal Pilgrim, Ayali. You know, whatever. I probably butchered that. Uh, white and a black, legendary creature, core cleric, two three with death touch, one generic, sacrifice another creature. You gain life equal to the sacrifice creature's toughness. One generic, white, black. Sacrifice another creature, exile, target non-land permanent. Activate this ability only if you have at least 10 life or more than your starting life total. Interesting card. I mean, it's it's pretty powerful, right, like, just by looking at it. I mean, 2 mana, 2, 3 death touch is already pretty good. Uh, Richard was saying off-cast that you're not going to be sad seeing this in uh, limited at all, but... The, the abilities are really good, too. Obviously, the second ability catering itself to uh, EDH and Commander, obviously, that would be fantastic. But overall, a really good card, and you could get 30 life in a standard constructed game. I mean, it's not out of the question. Or in modern uh, Soul Sisters. So what do you think, Richard? So I think it's an insanely strong limited card. Uh, a 2-mana 2-3 yeah. death touch is really good, and it just has random abilities on it. In terms of standard... I don't know if any of these abilities are, are relevant. Um, what was that card? Disciple of Gristlebrand or something? Like, gave you the first ability, which was sacrifice another creature. You gain life equal to its toughness. So it gives you a, a sack outlet, but you need a lot of creatures. And the second ability is actually pretty hard to activate. Like, if you remember um, Blood Baron of Viscopa, like, getting to yeah. 30 life is actually pretty hard in standard without right. a dedicated deck to it. And it still costs three mana for removal, so I, I don't know if there's a home for it in standard. It's, it's going to need like a synergistic deck, like an aristocrat-style deck or something to, to make it work. But limited, I think this is bonkers, and I'm sure people will play this in Commander. It is a legendary creature, uh, and mm-hmm. you can probably use its abilities quite well in Commander. So uh, I, I think those two areas, uh, this card will really shine. Yeah, it pairs really well with uh, Flip Liliana as well. Yes. Um, so... Uh... Seth, what do you think? I mean, it's pretty good. A 2-3 with a death touch for 2 mana is pretty good on its own. Uh, having this sacrifice ability 
one man is bad. So I think it's got a chance in standard. My big question is going to be, where does it fit? And I think we just don't know at this point. It's It doesn't seem to fit in any of the current big decks, but everything is going to change come Shadows over Innistrad this spring. So if there's support for like a black-white life gain or even just a black-white aggro deck, maybe alongside Drana, I think it could be powerful. Being legendary might keep it from being a four of, but I think it has has an outside shot at least of seeing play in standard, and it does seem pretty nuts in limited. Yeah. It would also benefit yeah. from getting a... Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Oh, it would also benefit from a really powerful lifelink creature. Richard mentioned Blood Baron of Viscopa, and that gains four life a turn on its own. So if there was something, a big lifelink, uh, playable lifelink creature that was gaining chunks of life, it would make it much easier to turn on that second ability and would make the card much better. Right, absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't know, I haven't seen a Soul Sisters list in a while, but I think they could splash black, right? Uh, I have seen them splash black before, so in modern, this definitely could get to the 10 life more than your starting life total fairly easily when you look at all the one mana 1-1, one, one, like this, the Pilgrims and, you know, whichever else, the one mana 1-1s, one, I can't remember the names right now. Um, but, I mean, that deck can easily get to 30 with, uh, uh what was that, Martyr of Sands? Yep, yep, Martyr's Yeah, Dance. that's the one. Right. Uh, so, I mean, that's pretty good on its own. But you're right, it might be a little harder in, you know, outside of modern, in standard, unless you get a big lifelinker, like you said, Seth. And, you know, Blood Baron of Viscopa, as Richard said, it was hard to get to, you know, turn on Blood Baron, but it was a 4-4 with lifelink that, you know, it, it got you there on its own. This is a little harder because you have to sacrifice other creatures, um, so it's a little harder than just being a 4-4 with lifelink, but it's it's definitely a strong card overall, and, and and at rare, I mean, this will probably be one of the stronger rares, so I guess we're all in agreement that's pretty strong. Up next, uh, Mina and Den Wildborn. Two red and a green, legendary creature, elf ally, a 4-4. You may play an additional land during each of your turns. Uh, red and a green, uh, activation cost, return a land you control to its owner's hand, target creature gains trample until end of turn. Richard? Uh, I don't know. So I initially told you guys I didn't like it because it was in Bloodbraid Elf, uh, because the art, for some reason, <coughs> excuse me, the art reminds me of Bloodbraid Elf and it's 2RG. Uh, but now that I think about it, it might actually be pretty good because we have uh, all of the enter the... Uh, battlefield land effects, uh, you know, the retreats, the um, the uncommon cycle. Uh, returning a land to your hand and getting to play two lands a turn might actually be pretty strong. So I actually think this would be pretty good in standard in the right deck. You know, getting two landfall triggers. Uh, you, actually, you can get a, a ton of landfall triggers if you have fetch lands as well. Or just like putting, you know, uh, two creatures on top of your library with Mortuary Mire seems like a pretty good deal. So... I actually kind of like this card for standard. Um, I'm not sure about modern. Uh, maybe we'll see in some kind of some of the land decks in modern, but I think standard. This is pretty good. A four man of four four is not that bad. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Seth, what do you think? I mean, it's not bad. It'll be interesting to see if landfall decks are still a thing after rotation without fetch lands. If they are, I could definitely see this being the top end as a way to double up on your landfall triggers. Another thing I noticed with it, and this is kind of going deep, but I really like the idea of using it to save your lands. Like, you can activate a creature land, block with it, and then bounce it back to your hand in re uh, at, hmm, before damage to have an infinite yeah. blocker or to save it from a removal spell. So I think there's a cool interaction possibly with the creature lands, and we're going to be getting more of those in Oath of the Gatewatch. So we'll see. Maybe there could be some really crazy deck that comes out of this. So Yeah, and you never know. I mean, we have that cycle of come-into-play lands in uh, Battle for Zendikar. There could be more of those in Oath, like Richard said. I mean, so it definitely does play with creature lands, saving them. Uh, it definitely plays with come-into-play lands from Battle for Zendikar and, and such. So it is a pretty good, you know, card, you know, cost-to-power ratio. Seems pretty good to me. I do like it overall. So those were the two spoilers from Oath of the Gatewatch. Again, unconfirmed uh, at this point. Uh, no official word from Wizards. Not that we'll likely get any, but... Um, at this point, but, uh, so yeah, you can take a look at those on the website and, uh, 
you know, get draw your own conclusions for yourself. But I think uh, here on the cast, we're liking the two legendary creatures that were spoiled thus far. So moving right along, big announcement, Stoneforge Mystic promo. GP promo, it was announced, and it, it sparked a lot of debate and speculation as to whether Stoneforge Mystic might actually be coming off the modern ban list. Obviously, people saying, you know, why would they make this a promo if this is not going to be coming off the modern ban list? Why would they make a legacy promo when they don't even support legacy? So let's talk about it, everyone. Let's talk about it, fellas. What what do you think of the GP promo, first of all? And do you think it's coming back in modern? Richard? So my initial reaction was, this doesn't mean anything. Uh, the, The previous promo, Gristlebrand, was basically a legacy slash vintage card. Right? It sees some play in modern, but not really. And we had a whole year of Gristlebrand. So the fact that we have a legacy Stoneforge Mystic promo doesn't really phase me. However, I was, I was talking to you guys earlier, I've kind of come around, and I think they actually, I'm leaning towards an unban, only because we have a modern Pro Tour coming up. And the easiest way to shake up the format is to add a low converted mana cost creature that can slot into many decks uh, back into the format, and that's Stoneforge Mystic. I don't think it's so terribly broken that, you know, everyone will play Stoneforge decks. Uh, Tarmogoyth is a equally strong two-drop. So I think we'll have the same tension as we have in Legacy if they do it in Modern. Uh, but having said that, people will have to pack uh, a lot of artifact hate if this becomes Modern Legal. But, you know, we, we have Lightning Bolts, we have Path to Exiles, we have Abrupt Decays, we have Coligan's Command. Uh, the same tools in Legacy for dealing with this card are available in Modern, so I don't think it'd be too crazy to unban it. And to shake up the Pro Tour, I think this would be the perfect, or one of the perfect unbans. So I'm actually leaning towards the unban camp now, you know, after we've talked about it a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you did come into this not <laughs> not uh, very adamant that it would not come Yeah, I, I did a complete 180. <laughs> yeah. Turned right around once I talked to you guys. As, as you tend to do. <laughs> Seth, what do you think? No, there is <laughs> there is no way they're unbanning Stoneforge. I the argument of they want to shake up the Pro Tour is a good one, and unbanning Stoneforge would shake up the Pro Tour, but I just can't see it happening. Uh, think of the list of cards they have unbanned in Modern since the Modern format began. Uh, I think it's pretty short. I know there's Wild Nakatl. I'm not sure if there's any past that. In all honesty, Golgari Grave Troll. Oh, uh, that's right, Grave Troll. I forgot about Grave Troll. But they typically, to shake up the format, at least traditionally, have banned cards, not unbanned cards. And I'm worried about the interaction of Batter Skull and Stoneforge. Like, that is a really strong interaction, and I don't know if we want a card that puts people, another card that puts people to the test that early in the game. The You either have an answer on turn two, or you're going to get beat down by a Batter Skull and probably lose the game. So I... I don't think it's likely that it gets unbanned. I think it's more likely that it's an expensive card. It's popular in commander and casual formats uh, because equipments are cool and you can play all the swords and stuff. And it sees play in Legacy, even though that's not that much of a supported format. So I tend to think it's just a sweet promo and it doesn't mean anything as far as Modern's concerned. Yeah, so I actually pulled up the list from the official website uh, just to follow that up, uh, Seth. (laughs) They actually unbanned Valica the Molten Pinnacle back in September 2012. So <laughs> that was basically like the only other one. Bitter Blossom, Wild Nakatl, and Golgari Grave Troll. Four cards. So not very many. No, not very Compared many Compared to all. how but many oh. they've banned. Which is <laughs> right, many. exactly. Many, yeah, a lot. But, uh, what would you ban today that would shake up the modern format for the pro? Summer Bloom. Would that, that just removes one deck that's like not even like that prevalent, right? It's pretty prevalent. Well, the, see, this is the thing. It's not based on prevalent. It's based on what the deck can do, and it's breaking the modern rule of they don't want to turn to Primeval Titan. <laughs> but what will you and, end up with, with, like, you know, Twin versus Abzan in the finals, and it'll be like every other modern Pro Tour? Yeah, I think Sword of the Meat could come off. That wouldn't be too egregious. With Stoneforge Mystic, no. <laughs> no, 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 without Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah, without Stoneforge Mystic. I, I, I don't know. We have Dark Confidant. We have Tarmogoyf. We have Young Pyromancer. We have Gurmog Angler. We have Tasker. We have all these broken two drops. So I don't know that another one would actually be that bad. right? If you don't answer a Bob on turn two, you're probably going to lose anyway, right? It's the same as dropping a Batter Skull into play. 
Yeah, but... Okay, so th- there's definitely an argument for for and against. A lot of strong points on they could unban it and they can and they should ban it. I think the issue that I keep getting hung up on is the reasoning they gave on Birthing Pod and why that card is banned. Now, I understand they make creatures a lot more than they make equipment, but the re- the reasoning they gave on Birthing Pod was Birthing Pod basically limits their design space on, on basically what creatures they can print while Birthing Pod is still unbanned. And I think it kind of applies to Stoneforge Mystic. Not that they've made any crazy equipment recently, but I mean, if you unban Stoneforge Mystic, do does like what the rest of like equipment they print from here on out just suck like straight up because they don't want to make a decently good equipment because oh we can't do that Stoneforge Mystic is modern is in modern and we can't give another card to Stoneforge Mystic. I don't know. It's like one of those cards where it's either. You, you have the removal, you have a couple cards it can play with, it, it makes some sort of impact to warping the entire format. There's really not a lot of in-between, so it's either doing some stuff or it's 100% degenerate. And I don't know if they really want to roll the dice on that. I'm leaning towards no. You know, Seth does really give compelling article uh, reasoning to why it should stay banned, and it's just one of those cards that was already on the ban list, since Modern came out, they don't want it to take over the format like it did in Standard. Not that it really would at this point. There are cards that can deal with it, and I understand that. But again, I think the reasoning behind Birthing Pot is really the final kind of crux that I have in my argument against. Because again, it's just, it, it does limit their design of equipment going forward. I mean, they really can't print like a very good, or even a good equipment because... Stoneforge Mystic will always be a thing if they unban. Yeah, I think I agree with you guys. I think there's legitimate arguments for and against. And if there was not a modern Pro Tour coming up, I would say it would just remain unbanned. Like, there is no reason to unban this card. But because there is a modern Pro Tour coming up, and we know that they need to shake it up to uh, gain interest, I think this is the easiest thing to do. Like, you, like unbanning a six drop or something, or you know, banning a single card, doesn't shake up the format as much as just you know, putting Stoneforge in every deck, right? Because everyone's going to try it, right? They're like, it'll take any deck possible. Right. And, like, try to jam a Stoneforge and a couple swords and a batter skull in. And that would give you a quote-unquote fresh modern, which, uh, you know, the alternative would be, like, maybe a Bloodbraid Elf, but that just powers up Jund and only Jund. And, you know, Summer Bloom, you could you could hit that the band hammer. You could try hitting Twin, I guess. Um, but I don't know. I think this is just the easiest way to shake up the format, which is, you know, yeah. not... Not unheard of for Wizards to do before a modern Pro Tour. <laughs> no, it is true. I, see, the thing about, I mean, and Seth said, you know, a really good point is the things that they, they really don't unban rather than ban. So I can understand that they, like you said, Richard, they could go after like a Summer Bloom. I don't think they'll ever hit Twin. I don't think it's that egregious. Uh, but Summer Bloom is enabling a lot of insane stuff. Like, turn two Primeval Titan is kind of ridiculous. Um, and it does it on a fairly consistent basis. Uh, so that's basically more towards it not dominating the format rather than it's just doing something degenerate. But I still think, like, sort. my pick would be, like, sort of the meek, after, uh, like, just looking at the modern ban list. I mean, a lot of those cards really can't come off. I mean, they're pretty damn strong. But um, sort of the meek could lend itself to I- enabling, like, more token-based strategies and, you know, enable Doctor Foundry and Bitter Blossom stuff like that. So I don't know. I know another person that really follows uh, modern a lot. Sheridan over at uh, writes modern articles uh, mentioned sort of the meek and I, I, I agree it could come off, but Stoneforge mystic uh, that really limits the design space. And that, again, that's really the crux of the argument that I go back to, but Karma yeah, man, there's plenty of broken two drops in modern. All of the is. legacy broken two drops are, yeah. are in modern. Well, you you said it best, Richard. I mean, every other color has a really good two-drop. I mean, it really, like, if you think about it, and white is pretty much sitting here with what? Are we in an Arbiter? Thalia. Thalia. Yeah, and is not even really that good in Modern, so... Yeah, she's not. Maybe, yeah, maybe it is time for Stoneforge in Modern. It could, but there's also really a lot of strong arguments against. But, hey, who knows? Maybe they print a good two-mana white card... Soon. What if they do something Man, ridiculous like ban Batterskull and unban Stoneforge Mystic? I think that would be the best thing to do. If if they were going to unban Stoneforge Mystic, I think they really kind of have to ban Batterskull. Um, so, 
But it would totally not make the article it like it would kind of invalidate the article cuz I don't know who was the author but they said like oh how how cool it would be to see a bunch of GP Stoneforge mystics against or paired up with a lot of GP batter skulls in your one legacy event of the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. It's maybe maybe we're reading too much into that but I think in modern they kind of would have to ban Batter Skull, right? Well, then you would have played Stoneforge. Who would play Stoneforge Mystic then, right? It becomes significantly worse without Batter Skull. Yeah, and then, and then you, we, we could go full circle and say, why even unban it at that Exactly. Point? Yeah, if you're going to like really take away its like prize equipment to go fetch, not, might as well just leave it on there. All right, GTA unbanned. Stoneforge no, Mystic no. unbanned. Oh. Skull banned. That's it. We know this yeah. can't happen. Skull we clamp. It. Throw that into Skull Clamp. Yeah. Oh, GTA's so good. The satisfaction GTA. of GTAing someone's entire board. <laughs> is is kind of crazy. I'm not going to lie. So that's our thoughts on that. Uh, again, not it could go either way. Really, I'm leaning towards no, Seth is leaning towards no, and Richard is still a yes at this point, right? Yeah, I, I think it's the Modern okay. Pro Tour. Had it not been for the Modern Pro Tour, I'd be all with you guys, but they need to shake yeah. it up. Yeah, you make a good point. Uh, moving along, there was a TCG player 50K taken down by Adam Yurchik. Uh Some interesting stuff that we just wanted to talk about, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, is the, the blue-green ramp lists. And we're going to carve out a large segment for rotation stuff next week, uh, Seth, but so don't don't jump the gun. But this could be a good sign for uh, part of the water veil. Uh, I know you mentioned that uh, in your article. If anyone hasn't read it, Seth wrote a really good article about rotation and just stuff you should try to look at right now. Um, so, yeah, and 92 tickets. Yeah, actually, the the ninety ticket one is not the part the water bail build, I believe. Right. It's but not. there there are two different blue green ramp decks that placed in the top sixteen, and one of them was like a turbo turn build, basically like somewhat similar to the one we played on Budget Magic, like a an upgraded version of that, obviously, since it's like five hundred bucks in paper. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think. <laughs> to me, the the interesting part is to see what colors ramp is going to be moving forward. Like, green-red has been the go-to color since you get a Tarka, but now it's blue-green that is kind of at the top of the heap, at least for this weekend. So as long as you're green, you can pretty much splash any color you want in a deck that's ramping up to Ugin and Ulamog. So it's it's kind of cool to see what direction people go with that archetype. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we've seen this crop up recently. Uh blue green is definitely making a strong uh argument of being the the color pair for ramp. I mean, if anything, you just get access to dispel and negate, which is pretty important for a ramp deck. I mean, having some interaction with the other decks. Uh not- more notably control, which has always been like notoriously a bad matchup for ramp decks. But yeah, it's interesting. Um Definitely a good prospect for part the water veil and uh, lumbering falls and, and cards of that nature. So good, good on you, Seth. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> should be should be proud of yourself. <laughs> uh, but that's really what we wanted to talk about there. Um, we didn't want to spend too much time because we have a ton of fish mail. So uh, thank you so much for everyone uh, writing to uh, Richard an email, comments on Twitter. All this fish mail is amazing. It seems like we're getting, like, so much recently, but that's okay because we like answering these. So um, we'll just handle that for the rest of the cast. Um, Yeah, so, Richard, take it away. All right. So first one uh, is an email about Oath of the Gatewatch game day. It is scheduled for the weekend of February 13th and 14th. Uh, For those of you who don't know, that is Valentine's Day. And so uh, the question is, I'm in a long-term relationship, and although my girlfriend and I have many common interests that we love, magic is not one of them. I can almost guarantee that I won't be attending. Do you think Wizards made a blunder by scheduling game day on Valentine's Day? Uh, Although unconfirmed, most people suspect the majority of magic's demographic is young single males, uh, with a significantly smaller portion that is composed of other demographics, including females, couples that play, couples in relationships... Uh, so this demographic comes very, uh, this demographic comes from a very hurtful stereotype about the magic community, such as they're all single nerds who can't get girlfriends. By scheduling Valentine's Day weekend release <laughs> event, has Wizards called out more attention to their unconfirmed player-based demographic? So basically, 
game day on Valentine's Day. Why would they do this? Why are they not considerate to those of us in relationships who uh, don't have the the entire family or couple uh, into magic? What do you guys think? Um, so let me just throw this out there before both of you talk on this. I really don't think they... I, I, I honestly... <laughs> Knowing Wizards of the Coast and like what they do, I honestly don't even think they really knew they they scheduled it on Valentine's Day. To be honest with you, um, <laughs> so I think that might, might have honestly been a a uh, innocent mistake, if you want to call it that. So I don't know if that was really planned, but I guess you could just because it's more centered around two headed giant, from what I've heard, uh, maybe that was a thing. But I don't know. I, I think that's really looking way too like way too deep into it. I don't I don't have their demographic numbers and their and their polling, so I don't really know what they're they're doing, but I guess they figured people could go out and go out with their significant other and play, you know, two-headed giant over the gate watch game or pre-release. I don't know. I think it's I think the whole two-headed giant thing was just silly, but I'll let you guys talk about it. And, and as for the demographic, I mean, who who gives a shit? I mean, really, like, you really care what what people really think about uh, like magic, the magic community. I mean, really, does that is that something that is like something people deal with every single day? I would just tell them to screw off. I don't really care. I mean, for I mean, I don't know. You know, for for a long time, there was a big dem like big uh, stereotype about gamers in general. So, and that's definitely changed over the years. So. Who really cares? I, I don't know, but that's my take on it. Go ahead, uh, Seth. Well, for me, I think it's just, I think it is going a little too deep to really blame Wizards for it. And I think as far as I understand, this thing works on a pretty regular schedule. Like you have the right. release events or the pre-release events, then a, whatever, a couple weeks later, it's game day or however, like then release, then game day. But I think for them to not put this, on the holiday, they would either have to change the schedule, which is how things always work, and people kind of know that, like how we know, oh, three weeks before a set, the pre-release, we start to get spoilers. Like, we have these time frames in our mind, because that's just how it always works. So I think they would have to, like, actually move the release of the set to accommodate Valentine's Day, or confuse everyone by taking and changing a schedule that's been set in stone for a long time now. So maybe it's unfortunate, I guess, for some people, like if your significant other isn't going to let you go play or doesn't like magic and like there's some problem, but really it's, it's Valentine's day. It's a game day. Is it really the end of the world? If you miss a game day for Valentine's day, like I think it's worth it to stay out of the doghouse if that's how your relationship is. So I think it's unfortunate, but it's not that big of a deal in the big yeah. in the big picture. Clearly, it's not game day, so it's even like you don't even get a mat. So I can understand. No, it's uh, it's game day. It's game day. Oh, is it game day? Yeah. Well, that's what it says in this email. I, I haven't actually <laughs> double checked. But oh, game day is on Valentine's. Yeah, gotcha. I, I yeah. don't think Wizards is making a political comment or something here, but I do believe that this is grossly incompetent. It's like the person that schedules their wedding on like Super Bowl weekend. You're like, you know, why, why would you do this, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, why would you? Yeah. Why would you put me in this position? You had all the other days of the year to schedule this, right? Like, if if game day happened to fall on Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that, uh, you know, that would be ridiculous. You know, they're not thinking that far ahead, and they probably should be, right? Like, it's it's already pretty bad. Like, FNM is already pretty bad, right? Friday Night Magic is, like, the worst night of the week to play Magic, right? That's, like, the start of the weekend. Uh, you want to hang out with your friends, and you can't do that unless they all play Magic the Gathering as well. So, you know, Wizards has, like, strange scheduling, I'm going to say. And I, I think, you know, it wouldn't have been the end of the world for them to move the set release up by a week. Um, you know, the, the calendar is known very far in advance. You know, 10 years ago, they, they know what day Valentine's Day falls in 2016. So they, they could have planned this many years in advance, but they, they just didn't. And we're kind of here. So uh, it sucks for those of us that want to play um, on the game day. And, you know, they, they can't because it's Valentine's Day. But, you know, hopefully Wizards will realize this and for future events they'll avoid holidays or pseudo holidays uh for these kind of events are you guys still here <laughs> yes. oh hey hey yeah 
Yeah, it, I have shocked you guys. Into <laughs> yeah, it, I, we're we're a loss of words, Richard. You 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 just nailed it. We we have nothing more to say. No, I agree. It was definitely enough to do it. I don't know if really. <laughs> maybe they just didn't know. I don't know. You know, maybe it's just a schedule that's just made and that's it, like Seth said, and they just go on their schedule and if it just happens to fall on this day, well, oh well. But, I mean, yeah, if you miss a game day, it's if you really love game day and you're super stoked about it, I think maybe you can come to a compromise. It's not like it's like 24 hours, so you could maybe just go to game day and then go spend the rest of the day with your significant other. I know a lot of stores schedule these at like 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon most times, so... You know, few hours and then you're 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 free unless you really scrub out and then you're good in like an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the the other thing yeah. is is too is that this is the winner set and I just like pulled up the schedule of release for Oath of the Gatewatch and I think part of the problem is the holidays are so close to the set release. There's already this big gap between the fall set and the winter set. So I don't think they want to push it back more, but basically pre-release events are January 16th and 17th, which means that spoilers have to start like as soon as the holidays are over, like the first of the year, they got to start spoilers or they won't have the whole spoiler season. And then you have the official release followed by the pro tour. And then the next weekend is the game day. So I think there's not as much flexibility this time of year as there are other times. If they just moved everything up a week, spoiler season would be coinciding with holidays when people are busy with other things uh, that isn't magic. So I think that they're just kind of backed into a corner to some extent, and it's just how it worked out. Yeah. I'm just going to go with the – they probably didn't think about this. It just happened <laughs> yes. to work out like this. Right. And, and as for the the demographic and the you know wh- who they target their audience to, I don't have their numbers, so I'm not going to really speculate on that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, who – who really cares about stereotypes? I mean, honestly, it's it's 2015. I mean, whatever. You just don't don't worry about it. D- just ignore it, and who cares? Just enjoy your game. Whatever. Just enjoy whatever you do. And who gives it? Who gives a shit if people try to bully? You know, who, whatever. Um. And again, I don't I don't know who they're really targeting the, these at. I, I, I'm assuming, you know, maybe they have the numbers, but I don't. So I'm I'm not going to speak for them. Okay, so that was uh, Sammy Hong via email, by the way. Yeah, good uh, question. So, so let's Thanks. move on from Tristan Shorty Bohis. I butchered <laughs> that. I don't know what that is. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I apologize, Tristan. Uh, not sure this has been answered before, but I was wondering if it was worthwhile slash viable to collect and redeem sets on Magic Online. Is this a good financial move, or is it just not worth it? So... Can, am I like qualified to talk about this now? <laughs> I, I that, think what so. Do you think? I think you are, Jazz. <laughs> um, go go ahead. I mean, I I didn't really. I'm not like that super into MTGO yet to uh, talk about this, but this is really your your guys' uh, forte. Yes. the The short answer is yes. It usually is. Assuming you want a complete set, it usually is the cheapest way to do it. Like, if you just want a complete set of Battle for Zendikar, that's the bottom of the barrel. You're not going to find it any place cheaper than redeeming it through Magic Online, generally speaking. As far as doing it as a financial move, you really want to be in tune with the seasonal influences. Like, there's a lot of things that impact card prices on Magic Online. One of them is when a new set releases. So when a new set releases, a lot of people sell off their old cards from the previous sets to have tickets to play in the release events and the pre-release events. And this causes the prices of the cards from the sets already in standard to drop sometimes 10 or 15 percent for a short period of time. If you can take advantage of those type of windows, it definitely can be profitable. Like there was a time when uh, this spring around when Modern Masters 2015 released that you could buy sets of Cons of Tarkir on Magic Online for about $60, and then Redeem Them is another $25. So about $85, you could get a complete set of Cons. And as of today, the cheapest ones on eBay are about $140. So if you take advantage of these windows, it can be very profitable. 
And it also depends somewhat on the sets. Like, focus on things like cons that have fetch lands. Battle for Zendikar is really cheap right now, and I think there's a chance that it's a good investment over the long term. But sets like Journey into Nyx and Born of the Gods that are just, like, not very valuable and don't have a lot of expensive cards aren't likely to be profitable or as profitable uh, if you're trying to redeem them to make some money. Yeah. Yeah. Seth basically covered that perfectly. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on, at Ord Mandrel uh, has three questions for us on Twitter, and they're all fairly short, so we'll go through them quickly. Uh, question one, how many hours of play does it take to become proficient slash good slash master a deck or archetype? Hmm. Well, um, that is a great question. Very, very good question. Uh, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's all really, like, I think it's kind of just relative to what event you're going to, because obviously you're going to want to practice more based on the event uh, that you're going to. Like, obviously, you you know, you're not going to practice like two weeks straight for an FNM. Uh, you, you might want to obviously increase that playtesting time for a GP or even more so for a Pro Tour or something like that. But I, I really couldn't give a solid estimate. Um, I, I would... Because it depends. Like, if you're practicing solo, obviously you'd probably want to put in more time uh, to get the quality of matches. But if you're playing with a dedicated, like, testing group, obviously they're all going to be, you know, quality matches. So you might not have to practice as much as you would, you know, on your own. So it's, it's definitely different. I don't know if there's, like, a set amount, like... Once you hit, like, 80 hours, you're good. Like, that's it. You definitely mastered the archetype. I mean, there's people who play Legacy now that have played Legacy for 10 years, and they still practice Legacy. So, I mean, it's basically like anything. If you're if you keep practicing something and keep yourself, you know, up to date on a format and you keep playing it, like, regularly, um, obviously that's going to be good. If you don't, obviously it's your game is going to suffer. Um, so maybe, maybe you could shed on some light on this, Richard, cause you play legacy a lot, like, uh, and that's like a really high skill cap, uh, format, I would say. So what, what do you think? Like how often would you have to play your deck list to prepare for, you know, a GP or something? Yeah. I think to become proficient with a deck, you probably just need like one to two FNMs. And that's basically learning like all the tricks to your deck, like what your deck can actually do, but to be a master at your deck, uh, it can take a lifetime, right? Like, think of someone like uh, Craig Wesco, plays White Weenie all the time, every time, every format, right? And I'm sure if you ask him, he'll tell you he has things to improve, right? There's always things to improve. And when you start playing stuff like Legacy, uh, there's just so many complex decisions that uh, every game you make, you know, 10 mistakes, 15 mistakes, right? Even if you've been playing your deck for a long time. So, uh you know, magic is a continual learning process. So, you know, if you want to be really good, I would, you know, play one deck and play it all the time. And even after a couple of years, you'll still have things to learn. Um, but as far as becoming proficient, I think just a couple events would, would get you there, right? You just need to know the tricks. You need to uh, watch other people play that deck, um, you know, know all of the uh, things it can do. Like, you know, if you have tutors, what your typical tutor targets are, what your typical outs are to certain board states and things like that. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of up to you. Like a lot of people just play a single deck their entire career. Other people just play, uh, you know, whatever the best at that time. And, you know, how much practice you put in is, you know, how, how much time you have and, you know, how serious you are about, uh, the results of, you know, the event you're playing in. Yeah. Seth, go ahead. Well, I think you guys are on the right track. I just wanted to add that I think a lot of it has to do with the specific deck and the specific format. Right. The amount of time it takes to get proficient or to master, let's say, standard mono red, where you're just uh, playing creatures and attacking, is a lot different than the amount of time it's going to take to master Amulet Bloom in Modern or God forbid, something like Doomsday and Vintage, which is a deck that's so complicated, very good proficient players don't play it just because it's a super complicated deck to play properly. So I think that there's there's a huge difference depending on the format and the deck that you're playing. But I think to really master something, I think that's almost a trick question, kind of like as Richard hinted at. Like, I don't think you can ever really master it. Like, I consider 
Joel Asset to be a master at miracles. He's been playing it for years, and I love watching him play the deck. He's obviously super good at it, but I think if you asked him, I don't think he would say that he's mastered the deck. Like, he's very good at it, but like Richard said, you can always improve. So I think that, that there's no way you ever truly master the deck. You just continually keep getting better, and that process or progress will get slower the better you get because the gains are much more, uh, much smaller and incremental than they are in the beginning when you're just learning all the interactions and the tricks. Right. And, and I think you, you nailed it, Seth. You don't really master a deck because, I mean, like Richard said, I mean, he plays Legacy. I, I primarily play Affinity and Modern. And the deck, like, the, the core, like, really the strategy of the deck hasn't changed since the first, you know, it was its first inception back in the, like, Darksteel days and, you know, Fifth Dawn and stuff like that. But, of course, there's cards along the way that change subtle nuances to the deck, like Steel Overseer, for instance, or um, Edge Champion. There, there's definitely cards along the way that add a new dynamic to the deck, like, oh, when should I... You know, when should I be, like, triggering my Steel Overseer? And, you know, what, what cards are better in X matchup now that the deck has acquired new uh, cards along the way? But but really, like, I've been playing Affinity, quote-unquote, since really, you know, since it came out, it, like, it, it was first introduced into the game and got, you know, banned in Standard, pretty much. I mean, I don't even consider myself a master at the deck because, again, if, you know, you don't keep practicing and you don't, adapt to the deck obviously there's going to be changes along the way in x amount of years over the course of the game cards are added to the deck and it does change the subtle nuances to those decks so really i I do agree with you said Seth. there's you you really don't master a deck uh but you could definitely be very proficient at it like affinity again changes but you still know how to play the deck and 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 a lot of your outs and what is good at what time and what your sideboarding options and stuff like that. Well, and the great thing about Magic is it's not just your deck that's changing, it's the metagame itself and everyone else's deck and new cards. So even if you get as good as you can possibly be at Affinity, something like Colgan's Command comes along and you have to rethink everything because there's this new card coming from your opponent's deck. And I think that's what makes Magic such an addicting and great game is it's not something like chess where you become a grandmaster and you know you're just going to win every time because you're better than everyone else and you've mastered the game. What factors create a likelihood of improving at magic? Uh, example, quality of opponents, magic online practice, regular FNMs. All of them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's, it's all of them. I mean, really, you want to practice all... Th- I mean, this really kind of stems from what we were just talking about. You know, if you, if you befriend people and they're, you know, fairly good at magic, you want to play with those players and develop a, a group. That would be ideal. If you don't, I mean, obviously you want to just grind MTGO. You want to go to FNMs. Um, you, you really want to try to hit as many events. You know, maybe hit a larger event, you know, when you can. Uh, you know, the Star City IQs, if you can, or the Opens, if you can. Um, those generally tend to... You know, they're they're a step above uh, an FNM, I would say, especially a GP, and you get a lot of quality of matches there. So, so really, those are the things that you want to look for. And again, just practicing on your your own if you can't find a dedicated playgroup. And Magic Online is awesome for that. Like that is the yeah. single best part of Magic Online is you can jump on there. And over the course of the time I've been on Magic Online, I've probably played against most of the pros at one time or another that are on Magic Online. And that's a high percentage of the pros. And I think it is true that playing against people that are better than you is important. If you just play against uh, your little brother who's just picking up the game all the time, (laughs) you're probably not going to improve that much. Uh, It definitely helps to play against people that are better than you and to really watch how they are playing and how they're sequencing their spells. And when they do something that's different, and you can do this with coverage too, watching good players, when they play their Vendillion Click at uh, their opponent's end of turn instead of their draw step, try to think about that and figure out why they are doing the something that you wouldn't necessarily have done in uh, t- being aware of those small nuances can really improve your game when you watch and play against better players. Yeah, definitely magic online too. I mean, even like the two man cues, Seth, and this is like something that I've more recently gotten into. I mean, you're, you're, you're playing meta decks. Like I've played a, a good amount of cues already and not often do you find like the, you know, improved draft deck. 
you know, even though I'm playing one, basically, uh, so, uh, and largely you too, but no, you, you do get, like, the, the meta decks, like, the five-color rally, the stuff, uh, you know, Esper Control, stuff like that when you're playing standard, so, you know, maybe the, the opponent's not that great, but you're still getting the exposure to meta decks on MTGO a lot. Yeah, and just to add on to what you guys have said, uh, quality of your friends slash playgroup, I think, is also very important. Uh, just yeah. having people uh, to discuss your lines of play with, uh, hopefully they're better than you, so they actually provide better insight. Uh, you know, having them watch over your game. Uh, you know, when you're in the heat of the moment, you're playing the game and you're worried about counting life and mechanics and things like that, uh, you might not be able to think as strategically, but your friend who's just sitting there watching over, they'll be able to think about that, and afterwards they can tell you, you know, oh, in this situation, I thought you should have did this because your opponent might have done this, and I think this line would be better. Or, you know, did you consider that your opponent could have top-decked this card? So just having that conversation, I think, uh, helps you improve a lot. Uh, same with Magic Online, you can actually view your own replays. So after you play a game, uh, whether you win or lose, I think it's very important that you go back and actually actively look at the decisions you, the decisions you made and see how they played out and see how they would have played out in other scenarios had your opponent top-decked a different card. So I think how you like critically think and how you approach the game is a big factor, and then your friends and your playgroup and you know how much practice you actually get in. And if I could add one more thing real quick, for me the yep. single biggest thing is learning how to learn from your mistakes. Like with Magic, there's so much variance built in, especially when you're a new player. It's easy to lose a game and say, oh, I got unlucky. Oh, I drew too many lands or too few lands or my opponent top decked the perfect card. The best players and what you want to train yourself to be is the type of player who will look at even those situations where maybe you flooded or got a little mana screwed and be able to learn what you did wrong in that game and make sure you can apply that to the next game that you play. So when you punt and make a mistake, instead of getting tilted or pulling out the luck factor, try to focus on what you could have done better, even if that change you made wouldn't have affected the outcome of the game, because sometimes you do draw too many lands and you still lose. But even in those situations, instead of tilting, try to look at what you could do better and improve from your own mistakes. Right. Like, obviously, you know, some situations you're really not going to be able to affect. Like, sometimes drawing, like, four lands back-to-back is, you know, obviously devastating to your game plan, and it's just variance. But if you're still playing the top quality of what the the cards that you did draw, that's the key there. Like, you want to be doing the most optimal plays with what you did have that game. And I think that's important, too. Like you said, Seth. Okay, and the third question, this is an easy one. What strategies can, should Wizards follow to avoid modern turning into the next legacy? Uh, well, the, I, the, big thing is, the big thing is with legacy, uh, I wrote an article about it a little while ago, is the reserve list prohibits the reprinting yeah. of a lot of cards, especially the dual lands, which makes the format really expensive. Modern, by its nature, doesn't have that problem. There's no reserve list cards in Modern. So all Wizards really has to do is do what they've been doing and continue to reprint Tarmogoyfs and Dark Confidants and Vendillion Clicks in other format staples uh, every couple of years to make sure that prices don't get too out of hand and to keep that supply of cards high for new players that want to join the format. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, really the the big thing about Modern in comparison to Legacy is really, I think, now it's basically down to barrier of entry. And for a lot of people, that is a financial barrier uh, rather than a learning barrier. And uh, yeah, I mean, you said it best, Seth. I mean, if they keep providing, you know, the cards and reprints and uh, allow people to buy into the format, I don't really think there's ever going to be a problem with Modern. And just by nature, it's going to avoid becoming legacy because there is no ban list, like you said. Um, the the format is, uh, by and large, pretty diverse. I mean, when you look at a lot of these deck lists, it, it kind of mimics legacy already, where there's a lot of different archetypes. Some are obviously strong, but there's a lot of these one, you know, tier 1.52 decks that are always on the cusp of being really good and could spike a, uh, you know, spike a tournament. So really, I think it is down to a financial barrier, like you said, Seth. I do agree with that a lot. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm pretty sure this is a financial question because if it was gameplay wise, like yeah, I want Modern Eternal Legacy. <laughs> but since it's phrased negatively, <laughs> it's probably a price question. And like that said, <laughs> reprint aggressively, and that's uh, what wizards can do. Yeah, because we're not getting brainstormed. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, so moving on, uh, we have a question from at Sorbu, which kind of we we just talked about. What was the yeah. rationale for going with a banned list versus a restricted list in modern? Yeah, we talked. I mean, having a ban having a ban list rather than a restricted list is you can reprint the cards. Like even if they're on the ban list, they can still be reprinted. But restricted list, not reserved list. So, oh, restricted like list. Like vintage, right. where you can only play one of a card. Gotcha. Um, I think that's just like an antiquated kind of thing, and maybe they wanted to keep that away from modern, where it's either all or nothing in modern. So, I mean, I don't know really what the issue would be. Is you know, maybe if you could play a one of of like a Jace the Mind Sculptor, would that actually be that overpowered? But again, I just for the sake of keeping modern a modern eternal format, uh, I think it's just easier for people to realize, oh, okay, I can't just I can't play this card at all, rather than oh, okay, I could play one. But maybe that's just giving too much too little credit to players. I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Richard and Seth. Uh, so I think it's. For variance reasons, like I think they're they're stuck with it in vintage because if you can't play it in vintage, like what are you gonna play it in, <laughs> right? So for the cards that are too powerful, they put them on the restricted list, but it creates a lot of variance. Like the when you draw all your restricted cards, your deck is really really strong. When you don't, your deck is very very weak, right? So the variance uh, is you know very high and. It's mitigated a bit by cards like Brainstorm and Ponder and things like that in the older formats. Uh, but in modern, we don't have those. And, you know, limiting someone to a one-of of each card it just makes it high variance and just confusing. So it's just easier just to ban it outright than uh, try to toe the line and just keep a one-of uh, in modern. Yeah, I agree. I think also the thing with vintage is it's supposed to be this place where everything is legal. I think the only banned cards are anti cards, which are banned for like gambling reasons more than gameplay reasons. Uh, so I think that's why there's a restricted list is that's what vintage is supposed to be. Any card you've ever opened over the 25 years you've been playing magic, it, you can play in that format, but legacy and modern are just different. Like that's, that's not what those formats are intended to be. And I think it's confusing. Like, I think that it's it's easier for new players to understand this card is either banned or it's legal than, well, it's not really banned. You can play one of them. So I think it's also complexity reasons uh, that keeps the re, um, restricted list out of modern and other formats. Yeah, agreed. All right, last question. We've Well, actually, we have two more questions, but one, I'll, I'll just give a shout-out to Kim H. here. Uh, yeah. She asked us, will Stoneforge Mystic be unbanned? And we already talked about that, so... Yeah. Uh, but the, the last real question is from at Sinfold. With lots of magic online fetches... Wait. With lots of magic online fetches, would it be worthwhile to wait until spring to grab the Mythics for set redemption? I don't know what this question is trying to ask. It's referring to fetches and then Mythics for set redemption. Okay, so I uh, what I'm taking from that question is... Uh, whoever's asking it has the fetch lands and would like to redeem them into paper cards, but doesn't have all the mythics that they need to redeem a set because uh, you need gotcha. a complete set. Right. And the answer typically would be yes. Uh, the cards like Soren, that's like 10 ticks now or somewhere in that neighborhood, will likely go down to uh, at least to some extent once, once they rotate. But... I wouldn't wait too long because a lot of times as you get near the cutoff of set redemption, really inexpensive mythics that are like 0.5 of a tick now start to climb up because people get in this big rush to redeem before the redemption runs out. So I wouldn't wait too long, but I would wait until, until rotation this spring after uh, Shadows over Innistrad releases. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I think that answers that uh, perfectly. All right, and that concludes our fishmail. We had eight questions this week, so thank you, everyone, for sending them in. Yeah, that was awesome. Very good questions. Thank you, everyone. Continue to do so, and we will answer them on cast. Gentlemen, I think that does it for this week. Last thing out the door is the uh, Wizards of the Coast uh, is making a little couple changes to their video coverage. So just quick takes on that out the door. Richard. 
uh, I, I don't know what it actually means. So they're doing one broadcast <laughs> for the weekend, and they're going to feed you news and uh, updated results from the other events. Uh, so I guess that's good. And they also said they're doing uh, more of a focus on storylines, which I don't know what that means. I'm guessing they're going to talk about individual players more and their progress throughout the season, which, man, I understand what they're doing. They're trying to mimic other sports where uh, the players kind of dominate the, their sports and their storylines. But frankly, I don't really care. I just want to see some yeah. good magic. And I don't care that uh, random pro player X is one point away from reaching platinum because I don't even know what platinum is. <laughs> other than the fact that it's better than gold and they get some perks but i guess they're moving towards uh reporting on the human aspect of magic this season so we'll see how that right. goes seth uh, i guess i don't really have any strong opinions <laughs> except to say that a lot of people on twitter are taking the announcement that they're only covering one gp per weekend instead of doing video coverage for two or sometimes three as a cost-cutting move and questioning why if Hasbro and Wizards are, uh, this is one of the franchise brands and they're going to put all their support into Magic, why they would cut back on something like tournament coverage. I don't know if I really, if this really is a cost-cutting move. I mean, I'm sure it cuts costs, sure it's some amount, but they might get more viewers if they can really focus on one GP and make that coverage excellent than have okay coverage with somewhat good coverage teams going 24 hours a day on those three GP week weekends. Yeah. I mean, large, I mean, <laughs> Richard pretty much said this, this, this isn't sports and uh, I don't really care not to knock any pro players out there. Uh, you know, good for you. That's great. Uh, I'm sure you all care. That's uh, fantastic, but I'm just here to watch great, you know, great gameplay. And, you know, they, these aren't like, these aren't uh, sports players, so I don't, you know, I don't really care who signs what contract or who's playing in what game, and don't really follow the storylines as much because all-time yeah. great athlete, Alice. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I've actually never heard of anyone playing who's, Magic referred who, to as an athlete. Who, who signed the new, you know, five, you know, five-year, eighty million dollar contract with like fifteen million a character? I'd actually be very interested in that. Actually, if like Channel <laughs> Fireball has just signed Sam Black for X hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, that would actually be very interesting news to me. <laughs> but yeah, we don't get that. We yeah. just get no, that no. He's five no, we don't. points away from platinum or something. <laughs> yeah, or you know, record, you know, uh, lifetime earnings and stuff like that, which is great and all, but I mean. Storylines is not really something I'm interested in. Talk about more about you know the cards themselves, the metagame, the you know the players and or the the matches, and I'm good with that. All right, so I think that wraps up a great podcast. Uh, we're back from the hiatus, so uh, we will have a lot to talk about next week. Thank you again for all the fish mail, and um, I think that does it for this cast, gentlemen. It was awesome. Good to, good to be back. Um, so yeah, that wraps up this episode of the MTG Goldfish Podcast. We will see you next time.